Sound Pages is a literary series featuring resident artists in the Jack Straw Writers Program. We stare into screens, hope for money, hope our wives are faithful, that their babies are ours, better chances with the slot machine. This program features the work of 2015 writer Bernard Grant. Curator Kevin Kraft spoke with him in an interview. I noticed looking over your work that you, your stories are very vibrant and they kind of jump right into things. Um, you have a tendency maybe to start a story with a declarative sentence or a kind of in medias race strategy. Um, brand new screen door starts one story. Um, I saw my father twice starts another one. What is it about that jumpstart quality that grabs you or that you're aiming for uh, when you're writing? I feel like stories should start where I don't want to see the action. I, I guess it should be immediate from the beginning. Stories don't always, in the first draft, they don't always start that way. But I often find that that line or those, those words that just grab me and that I think they just feel to me like the beginning. And everything else before that just wasn't necessary. Sometimes the stuff that I cut off will get moved to the further on into the story. A lot of times they'll just be cut out completely. How many drafts would you say you go through on a typical story, a shorter story um, in your repertoire? Is that something that you um, try to hold on to early drafts in immediacy or that it's something for you that takes a, a lot of shaping and chiseling to get to the place where you're happy? It really depends on what it is. I would say it's a lot of reshaping. I never really understood exactly what a draft a draft is. Like some people say, um, it's when something changes, and I see things constantly changing when I'm when I'm writing. But I, I mean, it's a, it's I can just say it's a lot, <laughs> a lot of reshaping, a lot of um, digging and rethinking, and a lot of times. Um, this is where I I get confused on where a draft is because I'll, I'll have an essay and I'll think or, or a story and I'll think that's done, but then I'll start writing another one and it'll have a lot of the same ideas in it and so I'll just take from the other one and then take from another essay and then eventually I'll just I realize that's not something I like at all and then I'll start this new and so I don't know if that's another draft of that first essay or if this is a just a whole new thing completely does that make sense it sure does yeah so um I don't know what a draft is but it's a lot of a lot of reshaping yeah well why don't you read for us um uh, sample of your work. Okay. This is an essay. It's called um, Don't Assume I Know What I'm Saying. I saw my father twice. One, in Virginia, just before he closed his apartment door, after saying he couldn't let anyone in until his wife returned from the grocery store. Two, in court, just before the judge ejected my brother and me from the courtroom because we were laughing too hard while the bailiff cuffed him. About the first time, when my trio of, of a family drove from our hometown in San Antonio, Texas, to visit my birthplace, Alexandria, Virginia, a few miles from D.C., five-year-olds, my brother and I begged our mother to see him. She knew, of course she knew, that he lived with a woman who wasn't the mother of his children, not us or the two before us. The youngest of twins, I stood back with my mother while my brother knocked. Door latched. My father peered through the, a sliver of an opening. In a quivering voice, he claimed he couldn't let anyone in until his wife returned from the grocery store. 
Then he closed the door. About the second time. Eight years later, student tied. He stood just feet away from my mother, facing a judge, weeping as the bailiff latched cuffs around his wrist, as the laughing sons were rejected from the courtroom. More laughter ensued when my mother met us in the hall and likened him to a dog. She'd become a comedian. He does, his face all saggy. He looked like a damn bulldog. With his money in our pockets, my family left all the way to Disney World. Hmm. Nice. Here, um, in the rhythm of your stories, a kind of terseness, um, and there's a certain tension that arises from that. Can you tell me a little bit about the terseness, um, the rhythm of the piece, and what it is, what it is you're aiming for with that effect? Um, when I when I write, I feel as I sense a certain rhythm for each line, for each sentence, each paragraph, every part of it, and I hear that when I when I'm revising, and if I don't have enough words to end it, then I I just kind of I guess the rhythm comes first, and I, I just kind of put a placeholder there until I do have something. Um, I think it's important that the prose sounds good, that it's just as important as the story is. And it just, it's just something I hear in my head that I feel compelled to make sure that that line isn't, that sentence isn't over until the rhythm matches whatever that, that is in my head. That's fascinating. I, it's a poetic rhythm in in essence. Then that you're fulfilling a a, a rhythm that you hear uh, in your head, and you you're trying to match that tempo on the page almost. Oh yes, and um, yeah. I guess it just comes from yeah, just just reading a lot. I mean, you, you see that in pretty much anything. Um, and when I write, it's I feel like it, it it's just a, it's necessary to have it there. Now we'll hear a selection from Bernard's live reading. So the story that I'm going to read tonight is part of a collection of interlinked stories that examines the interactions between emerging adults, millennials, and um, the middle aged. So I guess to see that kind of juxtaposition between, um, you know, 20-somethings and 50-somethings, I, I somehow ended up my stories end up at work, but what separates this story from the other ones is the, is the absence of work. So, um, yeah, three guys are looking for jobs. Um, I had more to say, but I forgot. So I'll just start reading. It's a longer story anyway. So um, it, the story is called The Way We Worked. Kim drives us through town. Shopkeepers raise blinds, flip open clothes signs. Street workers drop cones, drill, hammer, then she hops onto I-5, and all that's replaced by morning traffic until we climb Cooper Point, and the WorkSource logo appears, stamped onto an office building wall, towering over a 7-Eleven. In the parking lot, her baby bump squeezes past the steering wheel when she leans over to kiss my forehead and drop a sack of lunch in my lap. I half expect her to add, add school to her, have a nice day, though she often packs my lunch. Difference is, I toss it out. I say good morning to Amanda at the reference desk, she smiles and says, in for another shift, Jean? I nod and walk past several banks of computers to take a seat between Jeremy and Sam in the back. Nothing behind us but motivational posters on a small windowed wall. Above us, huge black letters pasted onto white say, support business, promote employment. 
up front of classrooms where people learn to write resumes and these interviews. We never go. <laughs> Last Monday, while I searched for jobs and contemplated the possibilities of failure, of begging on the streets to support a child that probably isn't mine, Sam sat down next to me and grabbed about collecting unemployment benefits, even though he's nearly old enough to retire. Later, I followed him outside for a smoke. Jeremy approached, a kid in a spiked leather jacket with pink and purple hair. Sam carded him when he asked the bum one and laughed as he reached for his wallet. You'd think the kid would pick someone closer to his age to commiserate with, but when we came inside, he sat down with us. It's quiet here, like a library. So we speak in stage whispers, talking shit while we adjust cover letters to send out with resumes. Even though we're in different life stages, we have sim similar qualifications, not much. Maybe that's why Jeremy sits with us. There's no pressure. He holds up his cell phone and warns us of spring showers. Sam turns to the window. I do too. I wonder if, like me, he's wanting to go out there to sit under that bright sky where there's usually gray. I say, there's no way we'll see rain and point to the moon working overtime, a yellow glow on blue and white where passing birds flap their wings a few seconds, then coast a while bef before flapping them again exhausting themselves for a chance to relax, the way, as boys, our legs pump bicycles, the way, as men, we work. Worked. Later on, when Jeremy warns us about rain for the umpteenth time, Sam tells me he doesn't trust technology. I just smirk and shake my head. Whatever oldies, he says, and nods the flip phone attached to my belt. Thick frames slide from his nose. Jeremy, like Sam and me, finished high school with a low GPA, not long after his attempt to drop out senior year and get his GED was fooled by his parents. Unlike Sam and me, he doesn't collect unemployment, doesn't live in quiet fear that he'll end up on the streets. His fear is that he'll in live with his parents forever. They want him to stay home. They even offer to pay his way through school. But he dreams of getting his own place so he can drink and smoke and get laid. Sam pushes back from his desk. I ever tell y'all how I lost my job? Sam's from somewhere else. Two words, Carl Perry, ever heard of him? The refrigerator guy? Jeremy turns to us, gripping his armrest. He's famous. Local commercials, I say. Did some roofing on his house, Sam says. Max lady gets all excited, has me introduce her. Later on, not even a weekend, guess who I catch her in the sack with? He stares at us, open mouth, as if he hasn't asked a rhetorical question. They both just sit there, he says, watching me all quiet like they're gonna give me an intervention. Then she threw a pillow and screamed at me to get out of her house. Her house? I threw both their naked asses out. Too close to home. I print out an application, walk over to the reference desk, ask Amanda to make a copy. She looks up from a stack of papers. In the parking lot the other day, she, she saw Ken's belly, and now she's asking me about the baby. I told her just a couple more months, say I can't wait, and drum my thumb on the desk, squinting into the bright light of the copier. When I get back to the guys, I slide the application in my folder. What's that, Sam asks. Yeah, Jeremy says, you holding out on us? I shrug, coupon, wife likes candles. I never thought I'd collect coupons like I do now, Sam says. I don't ever use them, Jeremy says, no offense. I'm trying to get easy work straight out of high school and everything. College is for suckers, all that debt for nothing. But I'll switch sometime down the road, find something good. Like what, I ask, something. He steals my folder and pulls out the application. He stands up flicking hair from his eyes as he reads it. Definitely not a janitor. Making a living ain't nothing to be ashamed of, Sam says, no matter how you gotta do it. Jeremy sits down. I snatch the application from him and tell him to find his own job. I am, he says. 
He sticks in, his, in an earbud and grimaces to his computer screen. I don't want to mop up shit anyway. But the, the janitor ad appears on the screen, on Sam's too. Stay with your folks, Sam says. Go to school, otherwise you'll end up like me and Jean. Sam touches his computer mouse and studies the screen. When you're old like me, too old for goals, you just do what you can. Sam was my age, not quite 30, when a sleepy trucker ran his pregnant wife off the road. I came to envy his grief, more clear cut than my own. I stand and stretch. Across the way, Amanda handles a line of folks at the reference desk. She looks at me, smiles, gives a little wave, as if we're a pair, as if we're in this together, trying to get these shitty jobs and unemployment. Through the entrance doors, I see a full parking lot, Kias, Fiestas, a couple of Skyons like kit cars, a Corolla with a rearview mirror dangling like a broken arm, cars that don't shine even in the sun, like us. We stare into screens, hope for money, hope our wives are faithful that their babies are ours, better chances with the slot machine. <laughs> I'm tempted to whine about Kim and me, how once this baby, this baby pops out, once I see its half-white skin, Compliments to the coworker she slept with when we split last year. I'll leave her. Jeremy could use a warning, but I don't get a chance, with Sam dabbing his eyes, sniffling about his girlfriend. Though when he says they would sell their arguments by comparing themselves to healing ointments, hurting each other for a good purpose, I suspect he really missed his wife. Now he's threatening to beat up the refrigerator guy. Sam's stooped and slow, has a gut, and he'll soon be one of those pokey old folks who clog up Costco, using his shopping cart as a walker. But his grief, Coupled with his deep voice, reminds me that he once lost a bouncer job after he cracked a beer bottle over a customer's head. I can still, I can see him, a thick-necked bald dude, strutting away from some guy, bleeding beneath the strobe light. Not worth it, Jeremy says. Mean to tell me Carl Perry don't deserve what's coming to him, Sam asks? I'm saying let whatever's come to him come. Rain stutters, trickles down the windows and gutters. Jeremy grins. I won't agree with him, but the kid's a kid. He doesn't know. A wife and child's not easy to let go. Don't tell me a punk rocker kid like you believes in all that karma crap, Sam says. We're not superheroes, is all I'm saying. Sam holds two fingers to his lips, sucks air. Right, man. Don't want to upset the universe, man. I don't believe in karma, I say. So much as I believe that one bad decision leads to another. My head hurts. I spin around so I face the back wall. Motivational posters still there. It's cheering us on. A cat hangs from a tree. My eyes sting. I close them. The cat lingers a second, dissolves. Someone who chooses to sleep around will end up with an unwanted child. For some reason, I turn to Sam then, and when we lock eyes, my face heats up. I get you, Jeremy says. Sam's feet tap, nearly in sync with the rain. I get you too. Perry's still a fucking no good. Jeremy scratches his stubble chin. Maybe he is, but how do you want to look? Desperate and jealous? What's the matter? I'm getting old. Of course I'm going to be desperate. You want to be alone at my age? No, sir. Replace her, I say. We head outside. I'm beat. Barely afternoon and it feels like the end of a work day. We stop at Sam's truck, a battered pickup. Fallen leaves damp on the windshield. A breeze stirs up that raw egg sulfur smell. Fresh rain in the parking lot. Petrichor, Sam says, looking up. Clouds block the sun. The smell, ain't that what it's called? Jeremy shrugs. I nod to a passing ambulance and wonder aloud if that'll be the one to take Kim to the hospital. Jeremy hooks his fingers in his backpack straps and says, that sounds like a lot of work. Then he lifts his chin and starts to head toward home. What, I ask, having a kid or raising one? Both, he calls back. But when you start parenting, appreciate the job while you got it. It's not like a regular job. 
Your kids fire you little by little. <laughs> what do you know about parenting, Sam asked. Jeremy's near the sidewalk, a car went the way. I've been watching my parents for 18 years. I don't think I'm done watching. He wishes us good luck, sticks in his earbuds, and walks up the main road. My suspicions about Sam's strength are confirmed when he pats my back. I stumble. He mentions that I never told him how I lost my job. Caregiving, right? Yeah, assisted living. Gave some dude the wrong medication. <coughs> Dang, where? I give, him, I give him the name of the place and ask him if I'll see him Monday. He grips my shoulder. Gene, he says, if I could have any job, I'd take yours, your new one. After what she did, it slipped out the other day. You want to end up like me? He gets into his truck, cranks the engine. Good luck, bud. I sit on a bench and watch ants log a black carcass into the grass. I hear a clatter of footsteps and murmurs. I look up. There's Amanda with her coworkers, returning from lunch, I suppose. Weaving into the flow, I bump WorkSource employees to each her to ask her if I'll see her Monday. No, she says. She's a temp. Then she says I'll make great, a great father and waves his own behind me. I turn and see Kim behind the wheel of our sheriff's station wagon. She waves back, like she knows Amanda, but I realize she's waving to me. I wave back, look back toward the office, and see Amanda headed inside. I hesitate a second and head for the car. Sound Pages is a Jack Straw production. The 2015 curator of this program is Kevin Kraft. This episode of Sound Pages was produced by Levi Fuller and Ayesha Ubiatilaka. Recording engineers are C.J. Lazenby, Tom Stiles, Mo Preventure, Daniel Gunther, and Steve Tatori. Narrator is Alyssa Keene. And executive director of Jack Straw Cultural Center is Joan Rabinowitz. Theme music by St. Helens String Quartet, produced through the Jack Straw Artist Support Program. The Jack Straw Writers Program is made possible with support from the City of Seattle Office of Arts and Culture, Four Culture King County Lodging Tax Fund, the Washington State Arts Commission, the National Endowment for the Arts, Arts Fund, and individual contributors. All of the writers heard in this series are published in the Jack Straw Writers Anthology, available for purchase and featured online at jackstraw.org. Thank you for listening.